0: Stories from California Cattle Country is produced by the California Cattlemen's Foundation and receives support from the California Cattle Council. We've created this podcast for those wanting to connect with the people and practices of far flung ranches and dairies throughout California through hearing stories from and learning more about families in cattle country. On this podcast, we mostly visit cow calf operations, where calves are born and raised to be sent away, potentially to a feeder or maybe to other operations. I don't always know what I'm getting into. We often joke that my ignorance to this industry is a plus. You know, fresh eyes, as they say. If you listen to this podcast, I assume you're probably an omnivore. So I've got good news. I haven't seen a single objectionable practice in this industry, and now that includes feeders. On this trip, we recorded a few podcast episodes. And while Katie Roberti was recording a Sorting Pen episode, which is our inward-facing cattle industry sister podcast... I walked out into the feed yard down one of the alleys. I was surrounded by thousands of steers and heifers. And as a reminder, from the glossary, a steer is a castrated male and a heifer is a female cow that has not produced any offspring. These animals are almost always processed and packaged. Anyway, I went out to record some audio B-roll with the intent of conveying what a feedlot sounds like. And this is what I got. Not one moo. Now, this isn't to say that they were scared or avoiding me. Quite the opposite. They're inquisitive and friendly, approaching me as I took pictures. As with every visit we create image galleries some of the pictures can be seen on our instagram page at cal country and at the california cattle council website now what you're hearing in the background are starlings birds who seasonally occupy the lots because of the abundance of food and fresh water thousands of cattle many within a few feet of me and no moose and this recording is a few minutes long content cattle are quiet each lot contains different breeds from all over the country Now, this is my first time in Imperial County, and my first time visiting a feedlot operation. I did my research, you know, my due diligence, and frankly, I was surprised by the vibe. I realize that's a weird verb to use, but it's the furthest thing from chaos. It's serene. Feedlots are commonly situated in outway parts. Imperial Valley is about two hours east of San Diego. What I've learned on my travels is this state is a menagerie of landscapes. Leaving San Diego, after about 30 minutes, you'll find yourself descending the mountains featuring jagged rock outcroppings that seem like they're from another planet or like a Dr. Seuss illustration. And then you descend into the Imperial Valley, some of which is under sea level. In this episode, we speak with Joe Dan Cameron of Mesquite Cattle Feeders about the feeding sector, quiet cows, and the unique history of the Imperial Valley. I'm Ryan Donahue, and this is Stories from California Cattle Country. this is an outward facing podcast for people that aren't involved in agriculture. And I think that most folks don't necessarily understand the sectors that are involved in beef production. I think the closest that anyone's probably like most listeners other than industry people have gotten is, is driving by Harris ranch on I five. And I think that most people think that that is a ranch and not a feeder. So I need you to introduce yourself with your name, what, what you do, but then also if you could just explain what is exactly part of the sector that
1: you're in. Sure. Uh, my name is Joe Dan Cameron. I'm uh, from Brawley, California. I'm a third generation cattle feeder and I'm the manager of Mesquite Cattle, a fourth generation of my family in the cattle business. And uh, I had cattle feeding family on both sides, my mother and my father's side. We're in the feeding business. Uh, so our goal here in the feedlot is to take cattle of all different weights when they come in and we're getting them and fattening them for harvest. You know, we're trying to produce high quality beef for the dinner table. We get cattle in from all over the United States, but the majority of cattle we get come from right here in the central to southern half of California. Like I said, we feed those cattle and we get them prepared for marketing to the different packers in the region
0: one of the first things that's really interesting to me is that I see now I was walking around out there. There's a lot of Holsteins, which now for, you know, non-agricultural people, those are the black and white cows typically used for uh, producing milk. But I also read on your website that a lot of your, the beef that comes out of here is really well graded. And that seems how, how is that possible? Because to me, I always heard that like kind of the holstein like Holstein milk cows, and then there's other beef cows. And how, how is that accomplished?
1: Well, uh, Holsteins are kind of genetically predisposed to be light muscling, but because of, you know, what's a, when you think of a Holstein or any type of dairy animal, they're producing milk and that milk, they have a high fat, usually has a high fat content because of those genetics of those cows, they're easy keeping. They don't, they don't add a lot of muscle. They don't get super big. These cattle actually, for some reason, because of the genetically are able to grade very well. If fed properly, kind of the um, misconceptions about feeding Holsteins if you go throughout the majority of the United States are that, you know, you're going to take a bulk, a steer calf, you're going to put it on feed, and it's not going to be fat until it weighs 1,850 pounds, and it's going to be too tall and rangy. The other misconception about Holstein calves is that they're going to, at harvest, they're going to be super light muscled and have a very small strip, a very small rib which can be true here in the Imperial Valley and kind of in the total desert Southwest into Arizona as well. They've kind of pioneered feeding these Holstein cattle. And this goes back into the early eighties with the uh, Ralph's California beef program, which was developed with a couple of feed yards down here, a couple of guys from Ralph's supermarket and some Packers. Yeah. So Holsteins are the majority of cattle that would be on feed in Imperial County. Because of the large dairy shed in California, that's why we have a lot of Holstein cattle on feed. They're the kind of cattle that are readily available. The majority of cattle born on ranches, I would say, in California are going to be shipped out of state to other places to be pastured and fed.
0: This is a really unique business, to be honest. And you were saying that your family, that you're fourth generation in cattle, third generation as a feeder. Is that because that feeders only existed for those three generations? Because from what I understand, it's not... It hasn't been something that's been a thing for a century. It's it's a more modern kind of uh, approach to to managing livestock.
1: Well, I guess like uh, like most any in industry, things have gotten more as the U.S. economy as a whole has gotten more centralized. Back when my great grandpa was a cattle buyer at the Omaha Stockyards, I think the average cowherd would have been like four head. And so that's the average family having three or four cows, a milk cow, a couple of chickens, a goat, things like that. After the Great Depression and into kind of the economic boom of the after the Depression, you, know, you saw people start consuming more meat. Farmers got really good at producing a lot of surplus grains during the war. That's when people went, hey, what are we going to do with all this corn and all this Milo and all this wheat that we've produced that was going overseas? Well, they started figuring out that you could feed it to animals. My great-grandfather and my grandfather moved here from Omaha. They moved to Los Angeles, and they worked in the Los Angeles stockyards for Kutahe packing. My grandfather, when he was in his 40s, partnered with a rancher named George Sawday and another local man here, and they started building this—started construction of this feed yard in 1949. They thought with the water, a lot of feed sources— being close to big urban centers like we are now, we get a lot of byproduct feed. Stuff that's produced in those urban centers, be a bakery meal, beet pulp, which is a byproduct of sugar manufacturing, things like that would normally end up in the landfill. You know, it makes really good cattle feed.
0: I know, mean, I've been to, a, I've never been to a feeder before. I've been to many ranches and a few dairies. And in dairies and ranches are completely different businesses in in every single way. And this, this is kind of like the third, like another tier. Mm -hmm. And I know it's like uh, one of my earliest interviews, uh, Katie, you know, Katie comes from a a ranching background. And like uh, one of my first interviews, I'm like, how many cattle do you have? And she was like, that's not something you ask people. (laughs) I'm like, okay. Um, So I learned, but there are a lot of animals here. I just walked out there, walked down the line and I was recording on my phone just to get some audio and not one moo, not one. They were all curious. They were all walking up. Everything was clean. It smelled good and all that stuff. How is managing that amount of animals I mean you have a lot of space, but how how is that done and how is
1: it different from ranching, you know? So um every morning we have what's called a bunk reader and we have one guy, he's in charge of calling all the feed bunks every morning. What we're trying to do is make these cattle gain weight efficiently. So we look at feed to gain and how much feed is it to produce at one pound of gain? And the more animal gains then the usually the cheaper our cost to gain is going to be. So we want animals to be efficient. We want them to be content, and we want them to be happy. And if Ryan, if you were walking down the down the alley and the cattle were all you know bawling, visibly upset, charging the bunk, then you know we're behind the cattle when we're not feeding them enough. So what we do is we have a bunk reader who reads every fee, every go he goes by every pen and makes a feed call in the morning. We have a system called Microbeef Technologies. Uh, So his laptop and his truck, he's making the call. Every pen of cattle that comes in here is lotted individually. They get an individual ID number those animals, and that animal is then that individual ID number and that lot number is tied to their electronic ID tag that they all have. We feed for a lot of different programs that require either age and source verification, NHTC things like that. We know exactly per pen, which animals are in the pen and how much they're consuming every single day that they're here from the day they come in to the day they ship. The bunk reader makes the feed calls in the morning. He goes, runs a schedule for the mill. The mill starts making feed at 3 a.m. As its trucks are loaded, each truck has a computer that runs a schedule based off the types of feeding. We have make seven different diets here and each diet's formulated by our nutritionist. The diets are basically just based off what stage the cattle are here when we get them and how we are a growing them throughout the feeding period in order to produce the maximum carcass amount we're we're trying to produce high quality carcasses at the end of the day feed trucks go out to feed we feed if either, either a 60 40 split or a third third and third all the light calves get a third third and third and that bunker drill make a second call after the second feeding to determine if he needs to increase or decrease those calves. As the feed trucks feed, the cowboys check all the pens, and they're checking for any type of sickness, be it respiratory, digestive, any type of illness that can happen in the cattle. When those cattle are identified, they're pulled from the pens, they're taken to a hospital pen. In the hospital pen, they're taken into a process, into a chute. Their EID is scanned, their lot number is put into the computer. It pulls up that animal, and then we could see if it had a previous history. If it had been treated before, then our veterinarian creates a group of guidelines, of doctoring guidelines that we go by. And if the animal's pulled for a we call it a R13, which is a first-degree respiratory illness, then the guys at the shoot side know exactly which antibiotics to give. And once those antibiotics are administered, automatically a withdrawal is put up onto the computer, and we know that, hey, that animal's given that that antibiotic on X date. And we're going to keep it in the hospital for observation until it's clear of its withdrawal. Every pen of cattle that ships out of here, a safe to ship report is ran. And any cattle that are not safe to ship are segregated and signed off on. I know that in just reading that cows are prey
0: animals and being so are pretty good at hiding if they have any maladies or anything is wrong with them because they don't want to seem weak. mm mm-hmm. um, your cowboys go out as on horseback, or do they walk around or take ATVs?
1: It's a, it's a blend, uh, mostly walking with all the dairy calves. Uh, a lot of larger cattle uh, can be handled horseback, or are handled horseback. All the shipping is done on horseback. When you're dealing with a lot of lightweight dairy type animals, you know they're raised by people. You know, dairy animals are extremely um, suspicious, and what do you call that? Out there, they're I've been, I've seen a lot of cows, and like, and usually the dairy
0: they're they're usually a little bit more friendly friendly yeah yeah and curious yes about more whatever. Curious.
1: They're, they're more curious so uh, all the calves as they come in we designate like a risk factor on them if the calves are number one and we know hey it's from a good source it's been backgrounded it's had all its vaccines it's been on a good feed program we know hey not that we don't need to check those animals every day but that they're not as high risk and we don't need to have be Hawkeye watching them. We get calves from uh, mixed sources, usually out of sale barns, where a lot of cattle are commingled. And because of that, you get a, kind of a larger viral load. And so we know on those cattle, hey, we need to make sure when the cattle get in. For me, it's most important, fresh water off the truck, fresh free, free choice alfalfa or free choice grass haze mixed, a light ration to get them started. We usually, depending on the time of year, we might let them wait three to four days, or we might try to work them a day after get them vaccinated, get them processed and get them eating. For me a good sign in the morning is to drive the feed bunks at 5 a.m., 5:30, if you could see 99% of the cattle in the pen at the bunk eating, you know you're doing good and you know you're that's part of our that's our main goal. Now,
0: cattle are ruminants, as you know, mm-hmm. and they produce a lot of waste. So uh, my question is, because I, I just walked out there just now, and I don't think you, you guys specially prepared for us to visit or anything <laughs> like that, and it's extremely clean. My question is, uh, where does all the poop go?
1: So we clean every corral two times a year, and we have to have manifests on that through our regional water quality board, and we compost all the manure. And then from that compost, it's all spread on the farm ground. All sold, mostly, we don't farm, Mesquite doesn't farm any ground, it's all sold to outside farmers, is orga- basically is just a certified organic compost for uh, fertilizer. For the most part, I mean, my job exists because ranchers
0: and, and dairymen and, and, and feeders want to get their story out, communicate what they're actually doing, opposed to what the misconceptions are. You know, ranchers are typically a little bit cagey. Like a mm-hmm. little squirrely about it, you know. And I would assume that feeders might be even more so just because it's a different operation, there's more animals and things like that. How would you address common misconceptions about the work that you do?
1: You know, we're right on a on a highway here. And the common misconception of any feed yard, I would say, is that you have cattle in a pen and you're not providing them any roughage and that they're fed all this corn, that, that makes them sick, and then we pump them Full of antibiotics, and that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, everything we do in the feed yards is specialized. You're looking at taking these animals, be it a eight weight yearling or a three hundred pound calf, and we our job is to keep them alive, keep them healthy, and keep them to producing this product that is going to be on the dinner table of our f- families and you know all of our friends and everyone else. Everything in the feed yard is tracked. The main thing I guess I would say is that if cattle aren't healthy and cattle are not comfortable, they're not going to perform for you. Like you said, if you could walk down an alley at three in the afternoon in Brawley, California, and you have cattle sitting, laying, not in any type of discontent, that's what we're shooting for every day. Part of the Cowboys job also is, you know, they're checking water troughs. We have a crew of guys that cleans water troughs every week. Fresh feed, fresh water, and everyday attention is the main thing we strive to to for these cattle to do for these cattle you know there's a lot of misconceptions about feed yards and you know there's not a lot of cattle feeders that are talking on podcasts i guess and you know usually it's um it's people from the other side that are the ones who are saying what happens in feed yards but that's not the case
0: the shade structures that you have there
1: yeah those they're
0: solar panels oh they're solar panels Mm -hmm. okay and then are the the birds out there starlings or
1: Yeah, they're starlings. And yeah. they're a pain in the ass. Part they're they're yeah, they're they're uh, seasonal. They come in right now in the fall. They usually start coming in the Pearl Valley when they start planting all the produce. Oh, I see. And I think it's just the weather and then maybe there's a lot of seed, but they love the feedlots because there's a lot of feed and there's water. Starlings are an issue here in the feedlot just because they pooping water troughs so i mean you could have three or four hundred land on a water trough and it'll be pretty dirty within a couple minutes so part of the tat that tasks us with just making sure that we keep our water troughs clean
0: this is going to be a two-part episode obviously because we're going to we're going to visit two feeders uh one being mesquite and then superior tomorrow i was going to talk to to mike about kind of the historical aspects of the of the area and then also about what it's like to operate in this valley because it's very very unique. But is there mm-hmm. anything you'd want to say about like the either of those subjects?
1: In the Imperial Valley, when they started bringing water here to irrigate farmland in the early 1900s, it's a very unique place. Um, like I said, they started bringing, harnessed basically the Colorado River, the Salt and Sea used to be called what's the Salt and Sink. And when the river would overflow in extremely wet years, this whole valley would be underwater. And if you drive down the mountains from San Diego, or if you drive down the interstate from Palm Desert down into the Imperial Valley, you'll see the water lines up on the side of the mountains so of where the sea used to be thousands and thousands of years ago, there's just a kind of a hardy type of individual that came here. We got a lot of Dust Bowl refugees that came here and you know, stuck out a piece of land and a lot of big pioneering families that, you know, came to a desert where in the summertime, your average temperatures are you know, 110 to 112 degrees. And, you know, there's nights in August where it doesn't get below 100 in the middle all night long. But they thought, hey, we have good soils. There's adequate water with this river. Yes, there's two months of the year when it's pretty brutal down here. But the rest of the time we could produce a lot of crops and cattle being one of them. You know, as you got later through the 30s, 40s, 50s, a lot of cattle were pastured down here on these crops, on the crop residues. And then as cattle started being fed in the feed yards in the 50s and 60s, I think at one time in the valley, there was upwards of 60 feed yards. A lot of those would have been small farmer feeders. You know, guys might have farmed three, four, 500 acres, 100 acres, and they might have had, you know, two pens to fatten cattle or or 20 pens. There was a lot of history, a lot of families involved in feeding cattle down here. A lot of families, like there still is a lot of families involved in feeding cattle, a lot of families involved in farming. It's just a unique thing because you don't see... The large family aspect uh, in a lot of other places, that, than you that, like you do here. This is like an, a common theme in, well, the work I do
0: anyway, is that most of the places I go to are a pain in the ass to get to. You know what I mean? And that's kind of why there's a ranch there. And, well, and this is one of those places, like, no one's going to drive out here unless they're going through. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like it's one of those places, but it's another, like, kind of really unique. It's the corner of the state Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating place and with, a, with a, like a rich history.
1: It's, uh, people ask like, what well, was a kid growing up in Pro Valley? What do you do? You know, you work. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, we have the Colorado river for recreation is 30 minutes from right here where we're sitting. I mean, if you like fishing, if you like, you know, jet skiing, river boating, wakeboarding, you got San Diego an hour, 45 minutes away. You got Palm desert, 45 to 50 minutes away. You got big bear mountain for snow skiing an hour, 20 minutes away. You got all of Mexico, uh, Mm -hmm. 25 minutes to the South of us. Some of the, you know, Baja peninsula, some of the best bird hunting and deep sea fishing in the world. While it is a, pretty isolated place like ryan said and you know for the average person you're you're driving to here through here because you're going from point a to point b and it's in the middle for us growing up here th- that's one of the good things is that you know we are close to everything and yeah, it's a it's a it's a neat place it's kind of similar i mean i'm not to draw too close of a
0: comparison but like the sacramento of the south you know it's like sacramento mm-hmm. is has proximity so, yep. a lot of things yep. that people really like. To me personally, I love Sacramento very, very much. Yeah, a lot of people's like, oh, we're hour and a half from snow skiing or uh, mm-hmm. surfing. You could do whatever. Joe Dan, I want to thank you for being so hospitable and allowing us to come bother you and do two podcasts in a row. <laughs> He's probably um, pretty exhausted, but um, uh, I, think we're, I think we have everything we need. Okay. Thank you, Ryan. On our trip, we interviewed two feeders in the Imperial Valley. We'll be hearing from Mike Sulpizio of superior cattle feeders in the next episode in two weeks time have a happy thanksgiving thank you for listening